0: Hey, welcome to episode 19 of Investing in Scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo. And in this episode, I get a chance to talk to Ryan Culp. He is the founder of a micro private equity fund uh, called Fork, where he invests in SaaS companies. He is also the creator of microacquisitions.com. And in this episode, we talk about his journey before getting into buying businesses, his creative and artistic journey and also his mindset when it comes to unlocking your potential and setting goals and half of this episode we really got into more of the philosophy the mindset and the importance of understanding how to create leverage and how to create time freedom through investments and making sure that one enjoys the path not only the destination so in this episode we also get to celebrate a huge milestone for his investment fund one of his largest acquisition he announced the acquisition or the exit of this particular folio company and it is a very exciting news just because the fact that he has shared a lot of uh, details in the process of creating upgrading innovating this particular uh, piece of software and yeah, he was just acquired recently. So with that, enjoy this episode. Thanks. Hey, Ryan. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Super excited to finally connect with you. It's been like two three years since I joined macro acquisitions. Again, I want to just share that with everybody that Ryan was the one that really brainwashed me <laughs> into buying a business <laughs> in a good way. So kudos to you for putting that. I'm pretty sure that That took a lot of your time and bandwidth when you could probably spend your time doing something more exciting for like (laughs) all the other goals that you have in life. And then you decided to still share it with with people like me. So thank you for that. Thank you for saying
1: that. You know, when we made that course, I'd say the without sounding like I'm fool of myself, the only backlash we got was actually by other people who do this. Other people who buy companies, grow them, turn around, sell them. Anybody in that space, those people kind of hinted to me, and I won't say names, but they sent me one-on-one DMs or emails or "Hey, solve this," and they would link to the course and say, "Like, why are you, why are you explaining this? Like, why aren't you sort of keeping this a secret?" And that alone was some interesting fuel to just keep doing it. I think anytime you upset the gatekeepers, you're probably doing the right thing. And our intention at the beginning was never to interrupt gatekeepers, it was literally like, I know something interesting other people might want to know. I think that's the source of all good pure content. It could be a blog, it could be a, a documentary, whatever. But the byproduct, the after effect was that some people thought we were sharing their secrets or hurting their ability to get business done. But I actually think as we've seen in the last few years, websites like MicroAcquire coming out, I actually think the more people that are interested in doing this, the more seamless, the mar- well-greased the market will be if only 10 people want to buy a company every year, there's not going to be a, a marketplace where you can one-click, submit a bid to buy that company. We need a lot of volume, a lot of people interested, and then that network effect takes off. And now it's hopefully easier for everybody, buyers and sellers, to get these deals done. So it's been really cool to be part of that and to hear from people like you who have gone through this and bought a company. Like what a What a weird impact to try to help have on someone's life versus, I don't know, a video game. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no. And I think one of the things that I really admire about you for, by the way, for the people listening, like if you go, uh, I'll post in the show notes all the links, but Ryan's personal blog is super, super detailed about like his bio and his story. Like he has a short one and then he has like a, a full blown bio, which is amazing. But I think I, I think I heard something a few weeks ago about there. there is this notion about your ego protecting you of not sharing and that's that that's been me all day long and i think you actually push throughout that kind of challenge is like you're putting all these ideas and thoughts and journeys and stories and you have to craft it and you spend a lot of time but you kill your ego when you did that right yeah So of course i can't can't
1: comment too much on this without ruining the effect of the ego but
0: yeah that's right There there you go there you go exactly So, no, and and that's where a lot of the work that you have in the training is very practical, and then you mix that up with a lot of philosophy. And, like, if if people are listening to this show, they go listen to other of your interviews. I wanted that really helped me understand more of what you did. It was uh, one with Nathan Laika. Again, I'm going to add the Uh show notes, the link in the show notes. So that really was kind of like, oh, wow, I can do this. I see it. And that's when I decided to buy the – yeah, you have a good mix between theory and thinking, right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, try to keep it practical.
1: Not smart enough for the academic theory, you know.
0: Yeah. So I was trying kind of to prepare for, for this whole conversation, and I had a hard time to try to stay focused because I, there's so many things that I want to talk about. The best place to start would be the whole idea of retirement. You still have, you know, your ventures going. You got the fun. You got some exciting news that we're going to be sharing this episode. And where's that whole idea of, like, retirement come from and like why you decided to go down that path or like actually make it a thing when you're still actively also doing business ventures?
1: Sure. So I guess what you might be referring to besides my trolling on Twitter is that once, maybe twice in the last few years on my, uh, on my personal blog, I've written something to the effect of title, I'm retired, right? And in each of these cases, I explained what that meant for me at that time. You know, what does that mean for my day to day? Am I waking up with an alarm? Am I, am I doing work or am I just not getting paid to do work? And each time I think my definition has evolved. But I think for me, it was about sort of slaying the dragon. And that dragon is our whole life. I think for a lot of us, we watch our parents as kids. We watch our parents come home from work at 6 or 7 or 8 p.m. We, hopefully we eat dinner together sometimes. And we just watch them struggle. And we hear about this thing called work. We don't really know what it is because we're in school learning long division. But we hear about this thing called work and we just think, man, I don't think that I want to do that <laughs> when I grow up. You know, as a kids, we're always thinking, what do I want to do when I grow up? I want to be a fireman. I want to... But I don't want to. And then in high school, college, you might have a part time job. And I certainly had a lot of part time jobs. And then, you know, in college, I started watching The Office. And the office was awesome because it sort of gave the funny side of how depressing it is to have a job, this like the typical nine to five job. So in other words, we're just conditioned to just expect that work is going to be horrible and work is not something we want to have to do. And people who are working, they are just trying to get to the point where they can retire. So that's how you learn the word retire. It's like, oh, it's, it's when you get to stop being miserable doing the thing that almost everyone has to do. But then as you learn more about money and taxes and bills, you kind of realize that this word retire is almost synonymous with being age 65, at least in the United States, right? That's when you your benefits kick in social security In other countries, it's different, but everyone kind of has that image in their brain of sort of being old enough that you've worked a whole career, you can retire, you have a mixture of savings, maybe a pension, government money coming in and you could just chill all day. And I thought it, over the first few years, I guess, of my career, that was just an okay image, but then it started to make me sad, right? Where it's like, wait a second, I'm gonna go really hard for 20, 30 years or however hard I have to work just so that when my body gets rickety and I can barely move around that I can just read the newspaper all day and that's like winning, that's life, that's all there is. And it, you know, I'm saying it in a sort of cynical, joking way now, but if you really go deep on that thought, you know, Depression and all these kinds of emotions, you can you can manifest any emotion if you just tell yourself you have that emotion. If you say, I am deeply unhappy over and like five times fast, you will become deeply unhappy, even if your state was sort of like, okay, before then. And so um, learning all this, thinking about all this throughout my 20s, I'm 32 now. I thought, you know what, I just need to retire, I need to experience this thing. And I need to experience it younger than age 65, or at least I need to experience it with a healthier body than I might have in 40 years. I need to experience it surrounded by friends and being in New York City. I was in New York City at the time. I just need to experience it in a different way than how mm-hmm. I think I think I'm supposed to experience it at age 65 with a newspaper. And so I started constructing my life around how to do that. And the fundamentals stay the same, right? We can't beat the, the laws of gravity had to have money coming in, I had money coming out, and I needed that that delta between there to be healthy enough to sustain that if I stopped making money, I could still have the money going out. And so I started doing things like airbnb I would Airbnb my New York City apartment. And then whenever someone booked it for a week, like a honeymooning couple from France, I would go fly somewhere and like crash in the office in San Francisco. So I did that for a year. Or then I wanted to learn to code. I airbnb would my apartment and I moved to Thailand. And my apartment on Airbnb made like 10 times more money than I needed to live in Thailand. And I started to see these like patterns and these sort of strategies you could use to have money but not work and relax or whatever that means to you. And so I think that might have been the first time I said, hey, you know what? I'm retired. And it was mostly a mental. I had overcome, I think, the game. I'd gotten off the hamster wheel, the hedonic treadmill and said, wow, I can actually wake up and decide, what do I want to do today? It didn't mean I didn't have any responsibilities. It didn't mean that I never did on the computer and wrote code or made money or sent someone an invoice, but it sort of felt like I had lifted off and I had some sort of independence, which is ultimately what I think the concept of retirement tries to to strike at. And over the last few years, that definition, I guess, has changed a little bit for me a couple of times. I've gone from Going really, really hard, you know, wake up at 8 a.m., go to bed at 3 a.m., coding all day to retired. I've done the whole like six months with no alarm, wake up at 2 p.m., play PlayStation, drink, hang out with friends, go to the bar on weeknights. I've done that, and that didn't really make me happy. So I've been finding that balance, but ultimately, I think I was able to, like I said, slay the dragon or break myself enough that now I can put back the pieces and say, okay, here's sort of the ideal structure for me. It's not having a boss and someone who depends on me, not having big deadlines, but you know, being able to express myself creatively. And I think when you're a creative person, creating good work means that people consume it, right? Just being creative and saying, let's combine ketchup with ice cream. You can say that's creative, but you can't call it art. It's only art if your creativity is something that people want to consume with their eyes, with their ears, with their money. So I like being able to create things that add value but having that be sort of on an unparalleled path from the laws of gravity, which is money and money out. So that's been my journey, I guess, the last few years, regardless of my location and what it looks like I'm doing day to day.
0: Yeah, no, great. And, And quick question on what you're talking about, art, is the definition of art that you just mentioned and consumption, is that something that is new to you? You've been familiar with that definition for a while. I'm just curious because I never heard that. The last one that I heard about art is like doing things for the sake of doing it, not for a result or an outcome. And I really love it because I, I always consider myself non-artistic and I'm like, I actually love that. Like just doing it for the sake of doing it. We're going to get into you doing music and you doing all these different things. And like you you probably will want to have people consume it, but you're not too worry about it though, right? Or are you? Well, This is definitely just one of my many personal theories. This
1: has been something I've been working on for just that sentence that I mentioned. I've I've literally been working on it for maybe six, seven, eight months. Ever since I got into NFTs last year, Mm -hmm. I've been hanging out with, talking to, and trying to understand more artists than usual, more artists than the average person. I'm Mm -hmm. surrounded by NFT artists. I have a little agency called Uju. Uju. We have been doing Web3 projects, helping artists, providing free tools, doing live streams, Q&A, blog posts, writing smart contracts, whatever they need to, to try to be successful. And through that process, I've started to refine and create my own definition of, of art or what is an artist. And the funny thing about it is all of us have a different definition of what is art. But to your point, that reminds me of like Seth Godin, The Practice, that book where he talks about just focusing on the input And the output kind of will come. You know, if you're a songwriter, just keep writing songs every day, keep performing every day. If you set a goal of selling out the stadium, well, that's not going to actually help you write a good song, right? But Mm -hmm. if you focus on a goal of writing a song that you would love to listen to and your taste, you consider your taste to be high, well, the next thing you know, that song is going to be a single and then you're going to sell out a stadium. So that's sort of his idea. And I think that's where I'm trying to go with this idea that. Art is something that people want to consume, because there's a lot of people who call themselves artists, but you would never give them money for anything they've made. And in exchange for that, that lack of transaction, they will actually blame you. Right. And they will become the victim. They'll say, I'm the artist. You don't understand me. But the Mm -hmm. thing is, if there's nothing to understand, like if I can't understand it and I'm a reasonably smart person and, you know, I have all my head in, my gears in the right places, then there is nothing to understand. And that's sort of my PSA for artists or what I call artists with the quote. And that's why I think the gut check for what makes something art versus art with quotes is whether it's consumable by other people. And, you know, even some other great thinkers share something similar. Like I was watching a documentary about on Netflix about these paintings that were all stolen from the Gardner Museum in, in Boston. And they said, look, the problem with stealing a big painting is that now that painting is no longer art. It was only art when it was on the wall and people looked at it. If it's in a closet and no one can ever see it for the history of the universe, it's the same difference as it being destroyed. It, it isn't art anymore. So I think, th- think there's supporting evidence to, you know, we can all cherry pick our definitions of art and artwork and it's a very emotionally charged topic. But in my personal experience, my confirmation bias says, unless you have that element of consumption, can we really call it art
0: or is it just like a doodle and something you do to pass the time? I love it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that definitely helped us uh, get into the, the topic about setting personal goals and where we're. Journey on on building this portfolio of businesses and and going through that. I think one of the things you mentioned in, in other podcasts is the fact that like you like people should start this whole acquisition entrepreneurship uh, journey by setting up personal goals. And in that, I mean, there's going to be some artistic things in there. There's going to be some unique abilities. You talk about that advantage, that that tiny advantage, and all that good stuff. Is is there a pattern in there with your artistic expression of your talents? I, it sounds like you were you know, into marketing and like, then you started doing coding. So there's a, this mix, which is fascinating to me because again, I can totally resonate with that. you have allowed yourself to evolve and explore. And even before doing all this stuff, like again, in your blog, uh, you have this massive list of all the things that you tested. So anyways, going back to the R, is there any pattern into deal-making business acquisition that you see that has given you some advantage compared to other people? I'll
1: try to answer this. It might sound a little roundabout, but I'll, I'll get back there. So we're all familiar with this basic power law that if you are working out and you're you're doing a curl and you're doing 10 reps and it kind of feels easy, but then on like the seventh rep, it starts to be a little tougher and the eighth rep and the ninth rep. It's, and by the 10th rep, it's really hard to pull it off. We can kind of intuitively understand that that Eighth, ninth, tenth rep is where we're actually building strength because we're we're tearing our muscle tissue and forcing it to rebuild, and that's going to make it bigger next time, so that the body can handle that load next time. Well, I think there's a complete analog to that, and our artistic expression and the outcomes that we get at work or in life or whatever. We're capable of this much, and if no one's watching, you know, I'm holding my hands far apart, but we just achieve this much, and that that missing gap is sort of like we're art is possible. I think that gap is sort of where sense of achievement is possible. I don't want to say that that's where happiness comes from. I don't think you have to be an overachiever to be happy, but at least to feel uh, fulfilled by your your skill and potential, yes, I think you have to push yourself. And so what I see is the first, I guess, goal we should make is actually how do I get to the point where I believe in myself? And a lot of times we have to see things to believe them. And so we can actually set literal goals. Like I want to make a thousand dollars online, or I want to, you know, launch a course, or I want to get a promotion at my job. I want to get a raise of 15% at my job. We can, and probably should set these super practical metrics based real world goals that aren't in our head, right. That are, that are related to other people and salaries and whatever, because when we then achieve those goals, That helps chip away at this real goal we should be having, which is I have a goal of believing in myself because I think that once I believe in myself, I can do anything. And so I would say that's the start. We set these goals that are a means to an end, believing in yourself. Once you believe in yourself, now you've unlocked that of additional talent, creativity, being willing to juxtapose two unlike things together and create something new. And then when you do that, all these other crazy things can happen. But it's sort of like a stepping stone and we have to keep our eye on the prize. And it's interesting because you talk to a lot of people who nowadays, all of us seem to be, I would say the vibe that I'm getting from at least tech Twitter and like bros and you know our sort of circles probably of people and people listening to this, people are so interested in philosophy nowadays. Like you can go, if you go have a drink with anybody after the first hour you're all gonna be talking about the meaning of life and happiness. At least that's been my experience, like for the past couple of years, traveling and hanging out with a lot of people. And I watched on a video the other day, this guy said, you know, Gen Z and increasingly millennials are the most obsessed generation with their happiness, but then they're the least happy, right? Mm -hmm. Because all they think about is their happiness versus like what he says makes you happy, which is just like focusing on doing good work and then one day you realize that, wow, well, I'm happy, you know, I'm achieving things in life. I have good relationships, whatever. But we're so focused on like how to be happy. So people are saying, I'm not going to take this job because it won't make me happy. I'm not going to live in the city because it won't make me happy. It's kind of like we're doing it backwards. And so I found that, again, all of those other things, you know, these typical, those old school way of set a goal, achieve it, set a higher goal, achieve it. That's becoming out of fashion because these Happiness philosophizers nowadays are trying to convince us that, like, Ryan, you know, you don't need more money because you should just be a minimalist and you should just have one pair of shoes and then be happy. And then, you know, you have one pair of shoes and you're not happy. That's not because they're wrong. That's not because minimalism is wrong. It's because you actually need to set ambitious goals for yourself so that you can unlock your potential. And when you unlock your potential, the happiness will come. And you don't have to do anything with the money. You don't have to do anything with the fruits of your labor. You can donate it. You can work hard for a nonprofit. You don't have to achieve in a secular way for secular purposes. But you need to achieve in an external way for internal growth purposes.
0: Yeah, makes sense. No, that's very and I can tell. Like, yeah, we, I can absolutely keep talking about philosophy for the whole rest of the podcast. But the example you were talking earlier about where there's a simple formula. Perhaps Teen Ferries, whoever came up with that long time ago, you know, or I bet he was not even the one that came up with it, but he made it popular for sure. Like the financial freedom or like time independence that's still very relevant for a lot of people especially people wanting to buy a business and that could be a simple financial metric i'm not going to ask you about your personal goals financial goals i'm curious to know your opinion just hypothetically an example let's say your goal was like okay if i make a million dollars my expenses are you know half a million like i have like I have achieved time freedom. I, don't, I, I have the flexibility to move my time. I can take breaks. Like you're saying, I can be quote unquote, retire and do my thing and pursue crypto and pursue music. The question is like, now that you've been through this multiple buying and selling businesses and whatnot, is that goal now changing over time? Like meaning the number that just purely financially is it like, okay, now from one, you know, I, I achieved that. Like you, you were saying a minute ago, I achieved that. I can do five or I can do 10 and your, your mm-hmm. expenses may stay at 500, whatever. I'm talking about yearly numbers, rounding out a hypothetical right. example. But is that something that changes as you go along and you start getting better at doing deals and like acquiring businesses? Is that changing or is that stable in, in your personal case? It's definitely been
1: changing. I think sort of in a linear step function sort of way, it's been changing, which I think is not you know patting myself in the back, but I think that's sort of a, a rational way to go about it. Because when you're when you're setting new new and new goals, when you're resetting your goals over and over again, you have to temper your ambition with your ego. So it's easy to say, well, I just made this much money from this thing, therefore now my new my new rate is X or my new value is Y, and that's not always true, right? Because a lot of times our success is a little bit of luck and a little bit of timing, and just because you know I make this much money on this like consulting gig doesn't really always mean I I deserve that on every gig, like because my skills level is going up and down and the right fit and the budget. And so it, it's kind of tough to say it's an exact science, but I would say my goals in the general sense, you know, financial and numbers is not this necessarily that I say each year, each month, I want to make more money. It's that I want to do less work. <laughs> I want to do less work and maybe make the same the same money. And so that means... Now that gives me something to focus on tactically, which is creating more leverage, right? So I was a marketer for years and then I was kind of basically full-time developer for a few years. Now I do a little bit of both, but for me to create more leverage at this point, I don't think I should really become a senior engineer. Like I don't think I should invest the time going from an intermediate excuse me, developer who's quick, I can quickly hack things together. I could invest hundreds of hours, maybe thousands of hours into becoming a senior engineer. Or (laughs) I think the way to create more leverage would be to just hire a senior engineer part time to solve the tougher problems at our apps. Similarly with marketing, I think I was a better marketer a couple few years ago. I knew more marketers. I went to marketing conferences. I spoke at marketing conferences. I was more aware with all of the tools. And now some of the tooling and the channels have changed a bit. I'm not an old school marketer, but I'm just not super current these days. And so if I wanted to uh, grow one of our companies, I would look for leverage, which would mean how can I find one of these marketers that is making use of all the latest and greatest tools and technologies and analytics and whatever. So creating leverage is sort of giving me something to focus on day to day that's very practical. A lot of times it means delegation. A lot of times it means training or hiring other people. But that allows me to achieve that goal of not necessarily making more money, but putting in less effort to maybe make the same amount of money. Because throughout this whole process, as you achieve more and more things, you really realize, and, and people say this, I've probably said this when I was a 12 year old, you start to observe people who have money, but they're really busy. And you go, wait a second, if you don't have any time to spend your money, then what's it matter, right? Because every dollar has zero value until the moment it is like transacted for a coffee or a steak or whatever it is you want. And so you start to realize like, wait, this is a sucker's game. When you have a skill, I could work 100 hours a week, right? There's people in the world. I'm lucky enough that there's enough people in the world that will keep me busy every hour of the day if I let them, right? There are people who will give me jobs that last 24 hours a day, but I have to say no so that I can enjoy my life. Not just enjoy my life, but stay sane so that I can sleep, so that I can eat. I have to do that. And so my goals over time have changed where, yeah, I just want to buy my time back, you know, and big companies do this, right? Apple's always buying their stock back. They're basically saying, we believe in our future more than you do. We're going to buy our stock back. People have even joked that this is the main source of gains in the stock market have actually been buybacks, not necessarily um, root value market cap increases. I don't know about that, the, the particulars of how true that is, but that's sort of what we have to do with ourselves, right? We have to like do stock buybacks. If we just keep growing for the sake of growth, we won't enjoy it. We're going to just be playing the sucker's game and that's I think what people are touching on when they say that they, they don't like capitalism. I think those people are misinformed, but I think they're touching on something that has a hint of truth, which is that consumption for the sake of consumption, more, more, more for the sake of more, is not going to make you happy. It's not going to be good for your health. So we have to balance that. I think we can do that with leverage.
0: Yeah. No, and I think you you touch on this idea of like switching from creation mode or like actively bringing input and output, like focus on that and then resting or like art and whatever. I'm curious to know if you have spent a lot of time thinking about flow inside of business, inside of what you do, inside of the hiring or analytical, which is still called work. But do you get into that flow where like time just completely fades and you're like just in the zone and you wouldn't want to stop doing that? Do you feel like in your day-to-day working at Fork at the Portfolio, you're getting flow and is not something that you want to move away and not do anymore? You know, like how do you handle that? So I've been
1: smiling as you've said this word flow, flow. It's almost like a, a trigger word for me in a good way. It's a Pavlovian connection. I have this word. I think all of us have probably read one or two books about this word, uh, deep work by Cal Newport and some others are, are good primers. And, um, it's a real thing. It's like the runner's high for me. After I run around seven miles, if I get there, Suddenly, I don't feel like I'm running anymore. I literally feel like I could run forever. It doesn't feel tiring. It feels easier than the first mile. And similarly, when I think when we're doing um, intellectual work, brain work, we're sitting on a computer, right? Not sweating and that kind of thing. We can get in flow, flow state, and time passes quickly. Don't notice what's going on. You lose your appetite. And suddenly it's 4 a.m. and the room's dark. I've had this experience many, many times. I would credit in a practical sense like everything I've ever been able to knock out that someone thought wow you did that or you did that quickly it was because of that state um, that I was in lately I have I guess a different relationship with this uh, on a day-to-day basis I haven't found myself being able to you know nine to five wake up get in a flow state I just I don't know I'm, I'm not saying I'm too old or, or that my brain is broken But it hasn't been my experience lately. Instead, lately, what I've experienced is like once a week, I will just sit down on the computer. I will clear my schedule. I'll have no calls, no meetings, like don't even have to take out the trash. Like I literally want to not have to leave my house at all, not even for five minutes to get a coffee. So I'll go buy two coffees (laughs) and put them in my fridge Um, and I'll say, okay, today's the day. And it's like, all right, crack my knuckles. And then I'll go 15 hours straight, you know, so I'll wake up at nine and I'll just go to bed at three or four a.m and I'll work on maybe an app or a freelance project. And I sort of try to do this one and done. And those are the days where I'm in flow state, but I'm sort of doing that in a sprint schedule these days, not intentionally, but if I were to look back at the last six, seven months and just observe, how did I spend my time? That's totally what I've been doing. I'll take a couple days where throughout the day I go to cafes, I read books, I study Korean, I work out, I go to the park, I take my shirt off, I tan, I lay there for an hour, I just think about life and then the next day or two for 15 hours straight I code, do email, computer, catch up on stuff, pay bills, you know, that kind of thing. And that's been that's been really good for me. It's been working out well for me. I understand it's not the most realistic for everybody, but I think a lot of us even with typical jobs are working, you know, remotely nowadays and great bosses only care that the job gets done. So I think it's not totally unattainable for a lot of people to, you know, push around and experiment with their schedule, doing less than half-time, part-time one day and going hard the next day. And just so that you can facilitate getting into that flow state. And this also makes me sort of like work hard, rest hard. Right, I don't wanna say work hard, play hard, work hard, rest hard. I can really enjoy um, sitting and watching Netflix if I know, if and only if, I know I achieve something really big having this be like my everyday do a little work and every day do a little relaxing. I think, I think I've gotten tired of that and the stage amount of my life now I just want big wins. I want to chill with, you know, Korean fried chicken on the couch one day. And I want to just sit on the computer, focus on my posture, you know, coding the next.
0: Very cool. Very cool stuff. Yeah. And I think like, since we're halfway through the show, I definitely want to get into more of like the recent investments that you've done and like more about your portfolio. So before diving into that, I would love to give you a two-minute context on like what it is Fork and how do you, right now, how are you managing the portfolio? What's going on with the, with the businesses that you guys have?
1: Sure. So one thing Gabe and I have basically been talking about this whole conversation is Fork Equity, which is a We call it micro private equity fund because really a private equity fund should probably have like a billion dollars inside of it. And instead, we're just a few people in a room in different rooms around the world remote working. And what we've been doing is buying small SaaS apps as well as starting apps, starting courses, kind of a, a creator studio, if you want to call it that, and growing them and in some cases selling them to other buyers. We started in January 2017 with FOMO being our first sort of asset, which we had started in 2016. And we felt we had picked up a lot of lessons, basic lessons, repeatable lessons, you know, things that don't change about how to grow an early stage company or product, how to get you know product market fit, how to get your first thousand users, that kind of thing. And so we started putting that to the test in 2017. And we bought a few more apps and websites. We started specializing more in Shopify apps. We bought a Shopify app called CrossSell that we sold a couple of years ago. So that was our first... Kind of big win or seven figure win, and then in the last year, I think we've bought and sold two things. Most recently in February, we bought Mergefreeze.com, which is a B two B tool for developers to kind of prevent bugs on their website, automatic pull request freezes on GitHub. So super niche, super geeky, but it's a good little app, and it you know does what it says. And then most recently, actually, right now, uh, we've just finished closing uh, a sale on on one of our main projects, which I'm super excited to to maybe talk about. But that's what Fork Equity is. It's a collection of, I guess, six or seven apps and websites, including the microacquisitions.com course, including some freelancing we've done for clients. And it's just our way of putting a stamp on the internet and saying, here's a, one way to, to build small companies, to not have a nine to five job, to still make sustainable revenue, add value to people. And then through that process, which is how I think you and I got connected, we've been able to try and uh, help show other people how to do really exactly what we do so that they too can live a life that's maybe a little bit more independent in the day to day and be in control you know, of their destiny.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's definitely something that I, I want to emphasize for the people listening is there's not one way of doing this. There's many ways. In fact, um, you know, it may be a fund, it may be, you know, buying one with like, I think, right, you talk about credit cards and like creative <laughs> financing and seller financing yes. and all this kind of crazy stuff. I, I I guess at this point I don't recommend that to anybody, but I think it's all about creative deal making and being creative about the, the path that you take. Now, when it comes to what you're saying, that freedom, you chose a vehicle which is an investment fund, and typically that's not necessarily the most free. Path or vehicle? Again, maybe that's a a, a myth. How do you feel about the kind of partners that you have and the way you structure your fund that allows you to still be free? You're still kind of taking the shots and you still align with your personal goals versus like some other funds that may be like, okay, we have to do this. We have to grow like the BC type of, you know, startup mentality. This is sounds like this what you're doing is very different.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really, really great question. And I'm glad to finally talk about that here because right now we answer this question a little bit in our pitch deck but only like a few hundred investors have ever seen that right so this is a good opportunity so if you're starting a fund in the classic sense or how the average person would assume a fund is structured you'd probably be right you get other rich people to give you money those rich people become your boss you have to send them lots of reports every month about your deal flow and how your companies are doing and the way you get paid twofold. You get a small percentage of the fund. So let's say you raise hundred million dollars and you have a 2% management fee, then you could spend, you know, $2 million hiring your team and paying salaries. And then you also get paid a carry, which could be, you know, 20%, let's say. So if you sell a company, you get 20% a carry, you get 20% of the profit of that valuation increase. So that's typically how funds make money, venture capital funds, as well as private equity funds. But, and that's not really just something I want to do. <laughs> so to be clear, that doesn't sound appealing to me. I don't like sucking up to people. I don't like raising money. I don't like trying to convince people of things. It feels icky, even though I am a technically a marketer and a salesperson. I don't want to convince you. I want you to be convinced on your own. So what we've done at Fork is a little different. When we started, we actually just used our own money. So yeah, we call it forkequity.com. We didn't, I don't think publicly on websites or content. We said, this is a fund, this is a fund. It was like we're a micro PE shop. We buy companies. And that's, that's been the truth since day one. But at the beginning, it was just our money. It was a mix of our money. It was a mix of seller side financing, where whoever you're buying, they essentially let you pay them back over time. It was a mix of the other thing you hinted at you know, using credit cards you know, to pay off and hoping that we'd, we'd make enough money before the interest rate. So we've, we've tried a lot of different strategies. We also got a couple loans. For example, when we bought uh, FOMO.com, the domain itself, that was a six figure domain sale we actually got a loan from an investor and then we paid them 10% interest over one year so we tried a lot of we tried really every strategy in the book other than like an SBA or bank loan but we took we took loans from PayPal you know PayPal capital has a way that you can get a loan based on your income on PayPal so we did a lot of things when we didn't have our own we didn't have real money we definitely didn't have outsider money and we were able to do that to scoop up an asset and then we put all of our effort into improving that asset. And then that becomes our track record. And then that track record, we can now take to investors and say, look, we've bought this many companies, we grew them this much percentage, we've sold these three, this is you know demonstrable proof that we know what we're doing. And now we can get outside investors to give us money and we have them do it on, you know, I think more so our terms. The other difference in how we've set this up is that we didn't want to do the typical raise where everybody commits and gives us money and now a fire is lit under our butt and we have to go find deals. We didn't really want that pressure. So the other main distinction, how we've set up our fund is this on demand choose your own adventure style. So it's more administrative work for us, but essentially we don't want anybody's money in our bank account at any moment. We don't want it sitting there. We don't want them complaining that we're not deploying it. We don't want them worrying about how we're investing it. We don't want them to question our decisions So instead we say, listen, apply to be an investor, we'll vet you, we'll talk to you, we'll figure out what you want, your check size, that kind of thing. And then if, and when we have a deal where we would like outside money, we just ping this investor group through like a BCC newsletter. And it's sort of a first come first serve. Do you want to be part of this deal or not? So now we've already vetted them. This is just a deal. They essentially get to act as like an angel investor, knowing that we will be operating the project. But they don't have to commit funds in January and wait for you know, us to deploy it in December. So we've been pretty happy with the strategy. It does take, again, a little more administrative work on our end. It would be nice to just always have X number of dollars ready to deploy. But you know, going back to like personal goals and freedom, I don't want to have the pressure of LPs and pinging us and saying, why haven't you deployed my money? I think I want to take my money back out of the fund. Because like, that happens. That happens with other funds. I don't want to play that game. So instead we try to, I think, at the same time maintain a little bit of uh, leverage and kind of actually have the upper hand by saying, listen, like we'll we'll give you an opportunity that will be first come, first served, take it or leave it. And that's a kind of for me a better way to keep investors in their place, the passive investors, and we'll be the active investors and operators. So that's been working for right. us, but this summer, we're going to kind of launch Fork 2.0, where we might make some changes to the fund to be a little bit more traditional now that we have more of a track record. But that was at least a, a great way to get started.
0: The current model that you guys are at right now, was that like, almost like a syndicate? They will invest in the company or were they placing the capital inside of the fund? Or how do you guys handle that?
1: Yes, that's right. It was kind of more like a syndicate. And then the other thing we did was we said, look, you know, a lot of times the funds will buy a company hire a team or keep the team. The funds kind of like are pushing buttons. They're very high leverage. We basically said, look, we'll be the team. We will do the marketing of this app that we're buying. We'll let go of the current team. We'll do the development of this app that we're buying. And that's what we did. So every app we bought, we immediately became, you know, I immediately became the developer. I immediately became the marketer. So that was a a way to show these investors more skin in the game on our part. And we also said, look, like, you know that we're putting our own time in it. You know we're putting our own money into it. We're not taking a minimum salary. So let's say we owe 30% of something and investors own the 70. Every month when we do a profit distribution, we get 30 and they get 70. So they're getting free labor, free free work. So yeah, it's, it's truly a, you know, let's align interests and we'll actually do more than we should kind of model. But it's what allowed us to get started. So I can't, you know, I can't hate on what works. And I think it's it's sort of, an opportunity available to all of us. So if I came on the show and I was like, yeah, we started our fund and I, I borrowed a million dollars from my dad and you know, it's like, well, nothing else I have to say is really going to be that useful because most people can't replicate that. But anyone can replicate saying, listen, I'm going to use my own money. You can optionally invest some money. You're going to get the same ownership percentage as me. I'm going to work as hard as I can marketing it and, and building it. That's available to all of us.
0: Okay. And last question in terms of funds, before we move on to like the exciting news that we have for the episode <laughs> today, how do you go about setting up goals for the fund that are aligned with what potential investor would want to see without having the crazy expectation from like the startup path? Like they, yeah, they're probably seeing all of that stuff in there in the startup world. And now they're coming here for, you know, cash flow positive businesses that are not going to 10x or 100x kind of thing you know
1: right i think there's a sort of silver lining here which is actually that the stock market and crypto have been crashing (laughs) and i Mm. think the last few months have actually maybe reminded even the most ambitious or greedy among us with our investments i think they've reminded a lot of us that you know what if you even double your money you're kicking ass. (laughs) So, so yeah, all of us are always looking for five to 500 X returns. I've definitely bought into the hype of some like meme tokens, for example, and DeFi and thought, you know, maybe I'll go up 10 X and I have gone up 10 X and I've also gone down 10x. So I've seen that happen in my own portfolio. It can happen, but then the crash happens. So it's like Warren Buffett says this kind of investing is like Russian roulette. Usually you're fine. Sometimes you die. And I think a lot of people's entire 10X crypto returns got wiped out like a month ago. And they're realizing that, wait a second, if I invested in something that created real world utility and I doubled my money, that would actually be a hundred times better investment than crypto where I might go up a hundred and I might go down a hundred. And so I think the reset or the correction as people are calling it has not just been literal in your wallets, but it's been a psychological reset where people are realizing, you know, Vanguard, index funds, making 11% return per year by letting robo-advisors buy and sell stocks for me all day. Those are actually pretty awesome systems. (laughs) And that's why those systems have billions of dollars entrusted in them, right? And that's why, oh wait, that's why I should maybe diversify my portfolio and not just have this meme token. So I think a lot of that's been happening now. And so with this new Fork 2.0, we're going to try to align with those recent events and we're actually still shooting, we're swinging for the fences bigger than 2X, but I just mentioned that because I think that's that's more than a reasonable return, right? Like I have plenty of little investments here and there where if I log in the dashboard, the return is like 8.5%, 11% annually. And to be honest, when I look at that and then I compare it to my crypto or I look at that and I compare it to some of the stocks, I'm doing really well over there. And so what we're gonna do with Fork 2.0 is very simple. Yes, we have a thesis, we have, you know, internal and external components of that thesis, things we think we think that we are or are not willing to share with others, sort of like trade secrets or special knowledge. But the the practical way we're looking at this is, look, we're going to try to buy a B2B SaaS app that generates $10,000 a month revenue, not necessarily profit, but $10,000 a month revenue, because that to me says they have at least, you know, two, 300 customers. That's enough for product market fit in my eyes. And we're going to try to grow it to $100,000 a month revenue, which is like a 1.3 million a year run rate. And once you hit the seven figure annual run rate, that's also in your multiple increases above like 3X to 4, 5, 6, 7X when you sell it. And that's sort of our like one liner elevator pitch. We're going to buy something at 10K and grow at 10X. Oh, and by the way, we've done this before. We've done it here and here over the last, you know, five, six years of running Fork. The specific details. We know what industry will it be in. Yada yada. That's all going to be in in our new updated thesis. But I think it's a really uh, simple way to explain the opportunity to an investor. Yes, we might fall short. Obviously, I can't guarantee we will 10x something. But we have 10x things in the past, so we also can't say it, it can't happen. And even if we two or three x something, if we get a better multiple when we sell, everybody wins. And this could happen in a span of you know as little as two to three years. So that's sort of what we're going for next. Like you mentioned, you know, if we were raising venture capital, you literally only even look at opportunities that could 100x, right? Everything you invest in, you want them to go public. You want them to IPO or be acquired by Google. But when you're doing this micro PE, to be honest, you don't ever even need to sell the company. And this is what's really interesting. And exit does not actually have to mean you sell the company. It could just mean you pay back all the investors. money plus a return so we have a couple apps at fork that we have no intention of ever selling they're just little cash cows they're just money printing machines one of those apps had an investor we paid that investor back i forgot what the numbers were maybe like we agreed on like 14 percent annual return and they had been an investor for four years we paid them back maybe in january of 2022 so they got a great return they also got cash distributions every month for those four years but we're not selling the app so they got an exit we now have 100% control of the app and everybody won. So that's another opportunity you have in, in PE is that an exit has a, a wider, broader definition.
0: Outstanding. Well, and congratulations on that new model that's going to be launching soon. And I think now it's time to finally get into the exciting news. And again, you mentioned there's uh, quite a few businesses uh, that you guys acquire and some of those apps, you're keeping them. But this particular one, it's one of the core ones that you share a lot in articles and like a lot of details. And I cannot wait to hear more about it. (laughs) Yes. So today's uh, big news, I'm I'm stoked
1: to announce for the first time here with you is um, we've just sold FOMO, FOMO FOMO.com. It's been kind of, not to sound cliche, but my baby (laughs) for around six years. Started it in 2016 it's been a long fun incredible journey i've learned everything i've learned almost has has come from operating fomo which which by the way goes to show that we think we need to learn something and before we can go do the thing but i think for me fomo is a living case study in learning by doing you know because i had to fix bugs at fomo i learned how to fix bugs <laughs> because i had to send like i had to you know do customer support at FOMO, I learned how to have bedside manner and do good customer support. I learned so much by doing, and that's why we constantly encourage people to just start, you know, within reason, right? Without without risking the farm, just start. But yeah, so we, we just sold FOMO to a fund, a new fund that is backed by uh, a much larger fund called Primary.VC, Primary Ventures rather. And you could check them out at Primary.VC. And they've had a lot of, interesting particularly B2B, dev, SaaS investments, including some unicorns, including JET, I think, and others, over the last several years. In fact, I used to work for a company that was funded by primary. I didn't find this out until later, back in 2014. And they've founded this new fund, Relay Commerce, to kind of work with specifically Shopify or e-commerce SaaS entrepreneurs. So they similar to us at FOMO see this huge opportunity in providing the tools for e-commerce stores to thrive. And as we're all kind of familiar with by now, Shopify, the number one, I think, leader in the space, has a great product, but they really depend on the app network and the app partners to make their product a whole product. They sort of provide the, the basics. You know, they take the money and they send the receipt. But these apps provide the rest. So without an app, you can't really have a good Shopify store. You can't really have a business. And so that's something that we've picked up on at FOMO over the years. And that's something that Relay has picked up on So I think we're joining as really their first acquisition of this fund. And I'm sticking around for the next year, at least to help them find more people like us so that they can continue to grow with the Shopify ecosystem, providing, you know, services
0: to the next wave, I think, of e-commerce entrepreneurs. Oh, man, congratulations. That's uh, like you absolutely deserve A lot of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I wish there's more of, you know, in-person hangouts for, you know, our community. Like eventually, I I hope you consider that, like maybe we go to Korea or somewhere, I don't know, but it would be kind of cool to meet the microacquisition community and just really hang out with you because again, man, it's a true inspiration and I cannot wait to hear like what's going to happen after a year that you go through all of that experience and you continue to kind of, Like, stretch yourself, grow, learn, experiment, and then report back. I think the report back is what really tells a lot about your personality and your generosity because, again, it it takes a lot of courage and people can – you probably could get a lot of hate uh, from different perspectives and different angles and whatnot – I'm excited. I'm inspired by you and and congratulations. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I think, you know, a year from now I'd love to have you and just kind of report back on what's going on, but you know, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you think maybe kind of like a deep question, but I think you're you're a, a deep thinker and whatnot, but is there anything that you wish people understand understood better about the work you do and what you're wanting to do with Fork 2.0? Is there something that I know you touched a little bit on kind of the type of relationship and the structure and whatnot, but anything else that you wish that people uh, knew more about what you do? There's either 50 things or or only
1: one thing. (laughs) The, The first thing that comes to my mind is I want people to know that we like being challenged and we like changing our opinion about how all of this stuff works. So I think maybe where I could, you kind of just hinted at it, right? Where I or we could any entrepreneur can rub someone else the wrong way and give them like, "Oh, I don't agree with that. It's like, that's the point. You know, we're, we're all just sort of like throwing these theorems out and seeing what happens. So whether you make a course or whether you buy a company and say, here's how we're going to do marketing, or here's how we're not going to do marketing, or I hate SEO, or I hate Google ads, whatever. All of these are just all of us carving out that pathway. And there's not just pure path, right? So there's going to be people listening to this who have a traditional fund background, and they're going to say the fork model is super stupid. But then when we started fork, I knew about the traditional fund model, and I thought that was weird. So I guess my PSA, my pitch to listeners, is that if you only agreed or kind of nodded your head to 10% of what I said, like, that's the goal, you know, like, we're all trying to kind of learn from each other. One thing that drives me crazy, and maybe that's why I'm saying this, Is when I see the self-righteous people online talking about, you know, and this is a, I don't want to name names, but there's this like wave now of like, let's buy unsexy businesses. And like, here's all the things I know about buying unsexy businesses that you don't know. Here's the secret to that universe. And I just keep thinking about this from a, you know, at bottom level, which is like, there's no such thing as a sexy business. So they're already making this huge, like philosophical flaw they're in, they're in, insinuating that, you know, I don't know, a, a B2B SaaS tool is sexy, but a dry cleaning business is not sexy. It's like nothing is sexy. All of it is pain. <laughs> Everything is pain. It's cool when a customer is happy and you can make happy customers at a pizza place or at an app, but the actual operation is pain. And so those are the kinds of things that if I don't want to say drive me crazy, you know, what angers you controls you, but those are the kinds of things that I think are, trending nowadays that are leading a lot of people away from potentially getting into this style of work, which is, you know, owning something and growing it and hacking on it. Maybe that you didn't start yourself buying something. That's what I generally like to recommend, but it's not for everyone and I get it. But where I think it gets dangerous and where all of us can, not dangerous, where all of us can be a little more careful in what we what information we consume is when someone is like super matter of fact about it because how can you possibly be matter of fact, right? Like Warren Buffett isn't matter of fact. If you, you know, and what he, unless he's talking about his own, you know, unless he's talking about Geico, he is not matter of fact. Why, how could I be matter of fact and how could these other people be? So the one thing to know about us is that we like to be, have these opinions be challenged. I think that's the secret to sort of forming better opinions. And if you disagree with me, that was you know part of the point.
0: I love it. I love it. I think, Like I say, I'm agreeing a lot with you. So hopefully that's not a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a tricky one. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But anyways, I really enjoy it, man. Thank you so much. And again, all the links are going to be in the show notes. Ryan's personal website, the fun website, FOMO.com. It's hard to miss that one. But Ryan, anything else that you want to share before we wrap up or any other link or special announcements? Follow me on Twitter, Ryan C. Colt. There you go, that's it. Ryan, thank you so much, and this is it for episode 19 of Invest in Scale. Thanks, Gabe. Cheers, bye-bye.